The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 3. Praise God. The first thing I want to let you know is... um, in lieu of the fact that I've not preached in five weeks, we've switched communion to mid-service just so you get a little bit of glucose, because it's going to probably be a long one. So I'm kidding. We won't do that, and it won't be that long. But um, I am looking forward to preaching. I'm glad the two of you understood what I just said. Um, hopefully the rest of you are going to jump in here with us on this journey. Amen. Uh, we are continuing our series tonight. It's called Life Lessons. And uh, due to the snow a few weeks back, the scheduling got a little wacky, and so uh, that's part of why. Um, I, I wasn't up here for five weeks, but um, it also means we're going to go a little bit backwards in the timeline as far as following the biblical narrative uh, and looking at different folks' lives. Uh, so tonight we're going to be studying the life of King Solomon. Uh, Adam preached several weeks ago, uh, and he covered some of Solomon's transition into being king and how his mother Bathsheba was a part of that process. Uh, Trent led us last week through the life of Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, and he comes to power when Solomon dies. So we got a little bit of before and after, now we're going to hit Solomon's life. King Solomon is regarded as one of the richest kings in history, arguably perhaps the most, and he's one of the wisest men to ever live, again, arguably perhaps the most. Uh, He is the principal writer of the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon. There is much debate about Ecclesiastes and whether or not uh, Solomon wrote it, In chapter 1, the author of Ecclesiastes says that they were a king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon was the last of three kings that ruled over a united Israel in Jerusalem, so that's to some degree a clue. Uh, Much of the self-description of the author in the book also seems to be describing Solomon, or at least someone very much like him. There are many who cite discrepancies in language and other factors as evidence against Solomon being the author. Uh, The human authorship of Ecclesiastes is an open-handed topic, but the fact that it is divinely inspired and thus a part of the biblical canon is the position that we'll be working from when we reference it, okay? Amen. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 3. Did you turn there? And we're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father. According as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go or come in. 
Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So you give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Amen. Uh, We'll draw our first life lesson from these first nine verses, that being that when we pray humbly with right motives, our prayers are answered. Um, I I could see some of you really liking verse 5, that God came in a dream and said, ask what you wish me to give you, (laughs) Uh, and God will do that sometimes, but only um, if our heart's in a place that we wouldn't ruin ourselves by uh, asking the question. So, When we pray humbly and with right motives, our prayers are answered. I want us to notice, first of all, the humility of this prayer. Uh, Look with me again at verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not not know how to go out or to come in. Here's what's interesting about this. When Solomon prays this, he is not a little child. He is a full-grown man. funny story about that phraseology. I was in a, a local store uh, around here, and um, you, you guys have seen these, um, what are they, are they hoverboards, the ones that catch on fire and burn people? Is that what it is? A hoverboard? Yeah. So these guys, <laughs> these two guys are, are gliding around this store like poltergeists on these hoverboards, you know, because all you can see is like them from the shoulders up because of the racks, right? And it's just an unnatural movement how they're going. So it's, it's like, what, what, what's happening? So First of all, I didn't know if we, you know, we were attacked by uh, apparitions or what was happening. But anyway, so it was just two guys on, on hoverboards, and uh, they were apparently shopping for undergarments because they kept kind of cruising that strip right there uh, and in, in those aisles. And so eventually the manager comes and tells them, uh, hey, you guys can't ride those in here. It's, it's dangerous. You know, I'm assuming they don't want them to either fall off or for it to explode and <laughs> catch everything on fire. And it was, it was, it was just funny because one of the guys pipes up and says, I'm a full-grown man. You can't tell me what to do. And, and I just laughed a little bit because <laughs> you're saying this from atop your hoverboard, sir, <laughs> at the store. So <laughs> anyways, that has nothing to do with anything. I just thought that that was funny, and he said full-grown man. So it reminded me of it. Um, so what is Solomon saying, though, when he is saying to God, I, I, I am king, but I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. What he's very humbly saying, what he's being very self-aware about, is that he is in complete dependence upon God, that the task that has been laid before him to be king over these people is more than he could possibly hope to do in and of his own strength. And so he's saying to God, I'm going to need your help. I, I am desperately going to need your help uh, to do this well. And so in that uh, you see humility in his request. Um, the, the second humble thing in, in the second, uh, second phrase that gives us an idea of where Solomon's heart is at this point is the fact that he's very, uh, he's very careful to say in verse 9, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And so he wants to acknowledge to God that these are his people, even though he is the earthly king. He has... The wisdom, at least this is before God bestows all this wisdom upon him. He's at least smart enough to understand at this point that he's just a stand-in. That he has been appointed as the leader of these people, but these people belong to God. And so he doesn't want to take lightly the fact that he has been called to lead them and be a judge over them and care for them and protect them. He thinks that that's very important, and he understands that he's doing that as a 
as a steward. And so uh, the reality is every person called by God to lead people should remember that those people belong to him. I try to be really careful to not call Love City my church. Now, this is my church in, from the terms of the fact that I am a part of it. This is the church that I am a part of, and, and I gather with you folks, and we are one body. So it is my church from that perspective. But many times you'll hear ministry leaders use the terminology my church in, in, a, in an ownership sense. And that, I think, is, is a dangerous indicator sometimes of, of maybe forgetting this principle that Solomon understood here. Who can judge these great people of yours, O oh God? Right? Um, and sometimes I'll either, at the risk of an awkward moment, sometimes I'll even stop people that, that are referencing, they're talking to me about ministry or whatever, and they'll reference Love City as my church. I'll try to politely stop them and say, Love City doesn't belong to me, man. That's Jesus' church. Because what is Love City? Love City is a church. That means it's a bunch of people. And a bunch of people belong to nobody but the king who made them and saved them. Right? And so I want to be very careful about that language. Um, Let's read on to verse 15 and see how God responds to this prayer from Solomon, okay? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you've asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor, nor shall one like you arise after you, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be many among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants." When we pray humbly and when we pray with right motives, the beauty is not only does God answer us, and not only can we be more confident that what we ask for is in line with his will, and thus we will see forward progress from that perspective, uh, it's also pleasing to God. And isn't that a beautiful thing to have said? That my prayer was pleasing to God. We should care going into communication with God the Father, that we approach him in a way that he feels honored, that is pleasing to him. I want him to smile when I speak to him, not want to crack me upside the back of the head. Now, how often do I get that right? Mm, probably less than half, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, but I, I want to I be like Solomon in this and pray for his grace to do better at that. I want to pray for his wisdom to do better at that. I don't want to approach the throne of the God of everything, the one who spoke and created the cosmos. I don't want to come to him in anything other than a way that would cause him to say, I'm pleased with that, son. And because I'm pleased with that, because I can see all the way down at the deepest chamber of your heart, you can see selfless motivation in Solomon. You can see that when man, God gave him a blank check, did you hear what he said? Ask what you will, and I'll give it to you. Now, God's foreknowledge factors into this. Of course, he knew what Solomon was going to ask. However, from Solomon's perspective, I don't know he was thinking about all that. All he knew was God just said, ask what you will of me. And what did he do? He thought about how his leadership ability and whether or not he was going to have God's help to do it, whether that was going to be a blessing or a curse to those people that God called him to lead. And so he wasn't, even in the request for wisdom, it wasn't really about himself at this point. 
Really what he was concerned about is doing a good job with the task God gave him. The thrust of his prayer was, God, I want to please you, and I want to do a good job of what you've asked me to do. Please help me do that. Give me the wisdom to do that. It's a pure prayer. It's one that pleases God the Father. I want to pray more prayers like that. Amen. Let's, uh, let's read what is probably one of the most well-known portions of Scripture regarding Solomon. This is, this is known as his wise judgment. Okay, so we're, we're still in chapter 3. We've made it to verse 15. Now we're going to go uh, verse 16 all the way down to 28. Okay? Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Everybody tracking with that? Everybody understand the situation? That's a tough one. We got no witnesses. We got two ladies saying this is what happened and it's exact opposite. They're the only ones that can vouch, okay? Then the king said, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. The king said, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son, and said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Wow. Life lesson two. One must understand the nature, that, sorry, one must understand the true nature of love in order to be wise. One must understand the true nature of love in order to be wise. So here's, here's what I'm, I'm looking at. Here's the question I want to throw to you. When, when we see what Solomon was doing here, um, this is one of those things that, that, that people without the Holy Spirit try to read the Bible and find stuff to like throw in God's face. And they, and they read this, they don't understand what Solomon was doing. There was no chance whatsoever at any point in this he's cutting a baby in half. Everyone catch that? He's doing something here. He's, he's trying to find a, a truth in the midst of a difficult situation. And really what he's trying to do, what is, what is he trying to figure out? Really what he's trying to figure out is, who, which of you really loves this child? That's what he's getting at by this bizarre act of, okay, get me a sword. We'll just, we'll just cut the baby in half. Now, here's the question. How would he know? How, how by doing that is he going to figure out which one actually loves this child? Well, the reality is the person, the, the mama that really loves this baby, the mama that actually gave birth to this baby, the mama that really cares about it, she's going to be willing to sacrifice at great pain to herself for the good of the boy. How painful would it be for this mother to watch the liar walk out of the king's court with her son? C can you imagine something more painful? I can't imagine doing that without the palace guards with a sword at my throat, right? 
because I'm, you know, whatever. That's not going to go down, okay? So can you imagine what kind of emotional trauma it was for that mom to make that choice and say, this is going to hurt me. This is going to be terrible for me. I am now not going to have the son that I bore, the son that I love, but he's going to be okay. And she had to trust that the Lord would take care of that boy, even going with this other mother that obviously didn't have very high moral standards, right? And so only, only love would deny yourself in that moment in order to be for the better of somebody else. We see that, right? That's what 1 John 3.16 tells us, that love is defined by the cross of Christ, that if you want to understand love, you got to look at the cross. And here we see an incredibly beautiful gospel foreshadowing, though God went even further than this. You see, this mama was willing to sacrifice her son for the sake of her son. God sacrificed his son for the sake of us. The rebels and the wretches who committed treason against him. That's love. That's sacrifice. That is serving somebody else when it doesn't necessarily serve your own needs. Solomon, in order to be wise in this judgment, he had to understand what love was really about. If he didn't, if he didn't know what love would do in a situation like that, he could not have brought this wise pronouncement. And a whole lot of wisdom is understanding how to either perceive or deal with or execute the knowledge that we already have, that's part of wisdom. The other part of wisdom is just understanding people. That's a lot of what wisdom is. And so part of what we see here is that along with everything that God gave Solomon, he must have gave him an understanding of what real love looks like because he knew, he was confident. If I have somebody bring me a sword and I raise that thing up and I say, okay, we'll solve this. Each of you take a half of this baby. Somebody, one of those two mamas is going to jump up and say, no! I love him. Let, just let her have him. Just don't, don't do that. Don't hurt him. And he's going to know immediately which mama really loves him. You see it? In order to be wise, we have to understand the true nature of love because everything ties back to that. The gospel is rooted in God's pure and perfect love for us. And we see here, we see here a picture of the gospel. We see that, of course, God, God took the the next step, because there was, there was nothing, it wasn't preserving Jesus for the sake of Jesus. He put Jesus on the cross for the saving of, of the many of us, um, the ones who didn't deserve that kind of grace, didn't deserve that kind of mercy, um, and yet he has seen fit because of his incredible love for us and his mercy and his grace to put Jesus in that position. He sacrificed his son in order to have us. The question is, can we believe that? And the question is, what is, what is the right response to that? When you, see, when you see a God of that kind of love, when you see a God willing to go to those kind of lengths to save you, you see a God willing to pay that kind of price to have you, what then should happen? Well, true love should conjure true love. And what should happen in return is when we see how much he's loved us, we then should love him. And that causes all kinds of things to happen. We want to serve him. We want to, as we sang earlier, give our all to him. We want to lay down everything. We don't, we don't do all those things. We don't try to do better, you know, sin less and, and do more things that we, we think will get stars on our heaven chart. We, we don't do all of that because we're, we're trying to get God to 
have that affection for us because we understand that in the cross, God has already declared in a resounding voice, I care for you. I love you. I desire you. I've made a way for you to be redeemed so that we can be together. I've paid the price. Will you trust that? Will you believe it? That's the choice that each of us have every day. And each of us, though, even many of you are sitting here, and many of you, when, 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 I, when I begin to allude, you could, you, you've, you've, you've heard me preach enough times where you, you okay, okay, now he's going to show us where the gospel is in this, and, and you can probably almost begin to verbatim start to say some of the things that I would say. We have to fight that tendency to think, I've heard it, so I get it, because we need to understand that we are constantly being pulled if, if, if gospel centrality and understanding things through the, the, the grid of the way God really sees it is dead ahead, we are constantly being pulled to the right and to the left. There is a constant counter message telling us you need to earn God's love. You need, you need to do something. You got to do something here. You need, you need some works, man. You got you to you quit doing that or else, you know, God may not love you. He might, he might kick you out. There's, there's a constant counter message. There's nothing else in the world that works like the grace of the gospel. And so everything else you do is preaching against this gospel message. And so that's why we have to keep it central all the time. That's why every time we open the Bible, we have to find it in here because it's in here, right? It's woven throughout the whole thing. And so that's why we point to it every time we come to it because we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to understand how it applies in all kinds of different situations, and we need to see that God went to great lengths to weave it through the entirety of the Scriptures so that no matter what page we were on, if we knew how to look and we had the help of His Holy Spirit, we would see it because He knows we need it that much. We will constantly need to be re-gospelized. We will never fully plumb the depths of the beauty of the truth of the gospel. So don't ever stop digging, and don't ever be satisfied thinking, I've got it. Because the, the, the gospel is a jewel with infinite sides that you can continue to flip in the light of God's glory for eternity and never exhaust its beauty. You'll never get to the end of it. That's a lot of what we'll be doing for eternity. He's going to flip that jewel again and we're going to, we're going to rejoice again. We're going to break into thunderous applause again, all of the saints throughout all of time. We are going to continually celebrate the goodness and the perfection and the mercy and the long-suffering of God the Father that is exemplified perfectly in the cross of Christ. We're going to celebrate the fact that we're there because of mercy forever. It's going to be awesome. You'll never be bored because we'll never get to the end of it. I'm looking forward to it, friends. Turn with me, please, to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, just a few pages over. Um, I find it interesting. I find it interesting that chapter 10 describes uh, the incredible wealth and prestige and comfort that Solomon became known for. So he's kind of, in 10, he's like at the height of that. It's, it's describing uh, how much gold this brother's gotten and how people are coming to see him just because he's, he's that fly, right? I mean, that's, honestly, he just, his life became just pretty much being the most awesome guy anybody knew about. That, that, was, that was the deal. And, and then, we get, then we get to chapter 11. So that's chapter 10, top of the mountain. Here we are, chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor 
shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Wow. What happened to the guy that started out with a beautifully humble request for wisdom that was pleasing in the sight of God? Where did that guy go? What happened? Life lesson three. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us that evil company corrupts good habits. This is not a quotation from the Old Testament. It's not even words from Jesus. Paul quotes from an ancient comedy written by a playwright named Menander. Menander told Uh, He told the truth at this point about this subject, and the Holy Spirit through Paul had no problem quoting a pagan that spoke this truth, that bad company corrupts good morals. Many look at this prohibition about intermarriage, and they use it to accuse God of sanctioning racism. A closer look is going to reveal that that is not the case. 2 Samuel 3.3 tells us that David married the daughter of a foreign king, Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Marrying a foreign woman was not against the law of Moses if she became a convert to the God of Israel. Here's what we have to see. What did not ruin David did ruin Solomon. What does that mean? This means God was not forbidding intermarriage based on who they were, but on who they worshipped. You got that? This is not about race. It's about who your God is. And God is very clear, and that instruction stands for us today, that we should not be unequally yoked. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Why? Because God doesn't want me to date that hot person that doesn't necessarily love Jesus as much as I do? Is that what it is? Is he a party police? No. Uh, God loves you and made you and understands it's going to be very hard for you to lash yourself together with somebody in covenant and live a life with them when you worship two different gods. It's going to be very hard for you to raise children together and teach them how it is that they should think and who it is they should serve if you don't have the same beliefs. And so there's all kinds of metrics used for compatibility, but the first one and the only one ultimately that matters is that the foundation of any relationship can be built upon the truth of Christ and his gospel. Matthew 7 says, if, that, if you have that, then storms will come and the house will stand. The Bible says if you don't have that, you could build a beautiful cathedral on top of that shaky foundation and someday, it's not if, it's when, storms will come, difficulty will come, the waters will rise, and the winds will beat against that beautiful life you built upon that shaky foundation and it will crash around you. And many times what people end up doing then is shaking their fist at God, not understanding why they're, they're, they're standing amidst a pile of ruins and they want to blame him when all the time he's saying to them, 
in my love, I instructed you from the jump. Don't do this. I love you. Don't do this. This is going to hurt. Trust me. If you're, if you're going to connect yourself to somebody in covenant, they need to be worshiping me. Or else, this thing's going to break. None of God's prohibitions are because he wants to restrict something good from us. It's always about him working for our greatest good because he's glorified when we live lives obedient to him that are full of joy. And this is true for any element in any place that we may be choosing to disobey God today because we've come to the conclusion that we know better than he does. Can we start saying that out loud to ourselves in the mirror more often, friends? We need to start being real with ourselves. Every single place we're deciding to disobey God is a place that we've decided we're smarter than him. Let's quit playing around about it. Let's quit justifying it. Let's quit putting icing on it and making it look pretty. Let's just get real and look ourselves in the mirror and decide and let ourselves know, okay, every single place the word has been clear and I've decided I'm going to do something different, I'm putting myself in the place of God and I think I'm smarter than him. And then let's deal with the reality of how that sounds coming out of our mouths. Yeah? Why? Because, again, we have to believe. And this is what we don't. This is the constant, the constant pullback is, well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't know that it really understands my situation. I don't know that God really gets the specific nuance and complication of what I'm dealing with. No, absolutely it does. And every single thing God has told you to do stands. And everything God has told you not to do stands. And it's not because he wants to ruin something good for you. It's because he's trying to keep the best for you. He's a really good dad, and he really loves you. Would you trust him, please, and stop doing what you think is best? Can I get a witness in here? Will you be brave enough to, to say something? Say amen, oh me, I don't care. Have you ever done something your way, and you realize, you know what? That didn't work out so good. Anybody ever been in that situation? Yeah. Oh me. If I lift the other one, you know, somebody will have their camera phone out, and this will be on the internet, so... Uh, amen. Praise God. Let's obey him because we trust that he loves us. And everything he's asked of us is for our good. Guys, so, guys, so much. <laughs> so much of the pain and struggle you find yourself in right now is because you don't really believe that. And I wish you would. Because I love you too. Not as much as God does. But we could avoid a lot of heartache if, we would, if we'd buy into that. Amen. So God was not forbidding intermarriage based on who they were, but on who they worshipped. Um, and that was for their good. Obviously, we see how it went for Solomon. <laughs> not so good. I mean, this guy started out as, as a spiritual juggernaut, right? He's having visions at Gibeon, right? Dreams where God's showing up and say, asking me what you will. That's pretty cool. And then like, he asked for something good that God says I'm pleased with. Like, I'm going to do that for you in a bunch more, son. That was a good prayer. And, and, here, and here we end up, a few chapters later, in this tragic mess. Because as much as Solomon started out wanting to serve God, as much as Solomon started out wanting to do exactly what it is God asked him to do, as much as his intentions were pure at the beginning, he chose at one point of this to not believe what God said. To not believe God's intentions and his motives in asking him to do something or not to do something. And how did it end? For this guy that could have been the success story, man, he could have been the poster child, right? 
God shows up, what do you want? I'd like wisdom, God, to serve you well. Boom! I'm going to do that for you. And here's a bunch of other stuff, too. Man, I love you. Good job. But part of the problem is, the more wisdom you got, the more intelligence you got, the more smarts you got, the more people start to let you know that, the more you start to think maybe, you know, this, hey, I can handle it. You know, God, God says that stuff to a lot of people, and, and sure, for them, I mean, yeah, you know, but I can handle it. I can handle these foreign wives. They won't turn me. I really love God. I can handle this situation. I can marry, I can marry these can marry these women that, that sacrifice to other gods. That's not going to cause me to stray. I know my own heart. We need like a crickets track. <laughs> can somebody work on that, please? I don't know. I was going to try to do an impression. I'm not going to. It's over. All right. <laughs> Wouldn't be good. All right. So uh, We're still talking about bad company, corrupting good morals. However, so we also know we as Christians are called to go into the world and engage non-believers with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel, right? So we can't overcorrect on this bad company. um, uh, Yes, bad company um, corrupts good good morals, right? We can't overcorrect on that. So how do we heed the example of Solomon's downfall and the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 telling us that bad company corrupts good morals? Uh, How can we heed that, pay attention to that, be aware of that, and yet still fulfill the Great Commission? Um, because that's going to, you know, going out and, and dealing with people that don't believe like we believe and, and caring enough about them, getting in, a, in enough of a relationship with them to be able to share the gospel with them uh, in, in a meaningful way. That's, that there's going to be interaction there. How do we strike the balance? How do we figure out how to not have bad company, corrupt good morals, um, but yet still answer the call to share Jesus with the world? The key is to be aware of which way influence is flowing. Okay? That's big. The key is to be aware of the way Influence is flowing. We should be influenced by those who are in relationship, by those that we are in relationship with who are spurring us on to love and good works because they also love Jesus. We should be influenced by those that we are in relationship with that are spurring us on to love and good works because they also love Jesus. We should be influencing, so I told you who we should be influenced by, we should be influencing those who do not love Jesus. And some of you are going to have pushback on this because, well, there's a lot of reasons maybe. Some of it might be that you've bought into this idea that to, to say that um, the gospel is true, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that the Bible is God's word. Uh, some of you, you you're, you're fighting against this constant counter-narrative that's telling you it's presumptive for you to say that uh, our God is the God. And I know that that message is out there, and you're getting hammered with it every single day from multiple angles. And I, 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 you know, we've addressed it before. I just need you to know, man. Ultimately, the only thing that's loving is the truth. Everything else is not. To and, and to succumb to this idea that there there is no truth, but it, you know that contrary statements. You know, you could say Jesus is the only way to heaven, or there's a whole bunch of different ways. As long as you sincerely believe whatever it is you believe, there's people that want you to believe today that those two statements stand in an equal and opposing force, like that they're they're both as valid as each other. That's just not true. It's completely illogical. Those two can't both be the same. One is going to cause the other to not be true. 
And to, to try to back up and, and use this kind of postmodern wide net and just say, well, everything's true for you that's, that you think and you know, whatever you generate out of your consciousness is, is as legitimate as anybody else. That's just, that's just not even the nature of the way things work because the, the, the whole problem with that mindset is if, 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 if you want me to believe the idea that, there, that every premise is equal, you've just given me a superior premise that you want me to believe, that every premise is equal. And thus, you've cut the legs out from underneath your own argument. And so, please, don't, don't let people make you feel like you're bigoted, archaic, stupid, um, or, or mean or unloving because you're willing to say that God created everything, his son is Jesus Christ, and he's the only hope for the world. It's not unloving. It's very loving, even if they don't get it. Okay? Sometimes I say stuff to my kids, and they don't get why it's loving. But it is. Because there's certain things they don't understand. And it's not, the thing, the thing you have to remember is the way you don't get into a superiority complex on that thing, when you're coming to somebody and you, you believe you have the truth that comes through the gospel, and, and how you don't feel superior to them is you remember this idea. That we are, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where the bread are. Bread is. Use correct English. We're simply beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. We're just beggars that by God's grace found some bread. And we're showing others where it is. That's how you don't end up getting it twisted in your head and starting to think that you're somehow better because you have the truth of the gospel. We're not. We were all broken and in desperate need of it on, an, on a level playing field. Okay? All right, um, so some of you might in pushback say to me, wait, are you saying in every relationship we have with non-believers, we should be trying to influence them towards Jesus and his gospel? I could see some of you saying, hold on a second. Like, you're saying in every relationship, we, we can't just be friends with non-believers and not be trying to influence them towards Jesus? In, in, in true Jesus fashion, let me, let me ask you a question. You've asked, you've asked me a question. Kind of. Let me ask you a question. If you're thinking that, okay? And I, I'm not coming at you difficult. I just want to ask you this and think about it. If you had some snacks with you, which let's be honest, many of you normally do, so this is not that hard for you to imagine, right? This first part of my premise, just imagine you had some snacks, okay? So just imagine most of your everydays, okay? Somewhere within reach, you got something to munch, okay? Um, so let's just imagine you had some snacks. And you were hanging out with somebody who was literally, actually, not like, oh, I'm dramatic, I'm starving to death, but they were actually emaciated, starving to death on the verge of, of dying of starvation, and you got snacks in your pocket, shouldn't you at least offer to share? Okay? So if you're around somebody who is dead in their soul, and you have eternal life within you, shouldn't you at least offer to share? They may reject you. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible to speak the truth in love. So those of you that right now are wondering, yeah, maybe it's right, but I don't know if I'd want to share my snacks. You're stingy and you need to repent during communion time about your daggone snacks, okay? And be more generous. You're terrible, okay? All right. <laughs> So yeah, let me just be clear. Yes, in every single relationship you have with a non-believer, you should be looking for an opportunity to share with them the hope of the gospel. Yes. That seems radical. Well, Jesus was. 
Now, this is not to say that we can't be challenged to think more circumspectly or be inspired by an unbeliever. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about influence. We, we can be challenged sometimes to think better or be inspired by unbelievers. Sometimes they have good ideas, good, good things that we need to think about. Sometimes they're better experts in things that we're not. But we should never be influenced away from Jesus and his gospel by them. They should be influenced towards Jesus and his gospel by us. So when it comes down to eternal things and the true nature of the way everything works, being inspired by, being challenged to think more circumspectly by those that don't trust Jesus is, is absolutely okay. That's what I'm talking about when I mean influence. I mean, we should not be able to be drawn away by somebody that the Bible describes as blind and dead in their sins when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to eternal things. We should be doing everything we possibly can to give them hope and give them a chance uh, at tasting the beauty of eternal life, found in Christ and Him alone. We must all mind the company we keep and who the primary influences in our life are. Uh, this goes for Christians as well. You should not surround yourself with only people doing the bare minimum for the kingdom or people with little fruit of a life being laid down for the cause of Christ. You can be an encouragement to these folks, but you should be influenced by people that are treating this life like the race that Paul tells us it is and that they are running hard by God's grace for his glory. You understand what I'm saying? You, you tend to kind of, your pace tends to be dictated by the company you keep. So find people that are praying more than you and, and hang out with them. Find people that are evangelizing more than you and hang out with them. I'm not saying don't hang out with people that are doing less, but you should be bringing them along too. Find, out, find people that are, that are laying down more of their life for the cause of Christ and, and, and hang out with them and, and you guys sharpen each other and push each other on towards love and good works. That's what Hebrews says we should be doing to each other. Not sitting in a circle affirming our justifications of, of laziness and disengagement. Oh, that wasn't in my notes. Okay. And nobody said amen. That was surprising. I thought that was a good spot. I knew you wouldn't. I'm kidding. Being facetious. All right. Um, I do not think it is coincidence that we hear of Solomon's heart being turned from God after we hear of him at the height of his wealth, being visited by foreign queens who simply want to bask in the radiance of his wisdom and then leaving all their camels and gifts with him because they're so blown away by his personal greatness. Um, please hear me before I say what I'm about to say, that money is not evil. Money is not evil. However, the love of money is the root of all evil, and the love of money is married to pride, and it spawns offspring of selfishness and materialism. Okay? Uh, the last study that I saw said that uh, suicide was the cause of death for 24% of the ultra-wealthy who died between 2008 and 2010. One in four people, I'm talking ultra-wealthy, I'm talking like, you know, little yacht, for your big yacht, so that if you want to get to your other yacht, you got something to transport, right? That type of wealthy. Helipad wealthy. You know what I'm saying? 24% of people that died in that bracket died because they killed themselves. Okay? That should cause us to think a minute. Because most of us think that if we could get to helipad status, all our problems would be solved. Right? It's not true, obviously. Um, I do think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but even if not, bottom line, it was written by a rich king, okay? I, I, I have looked at it. I know, I know all the reasons for both sides. I think Solomon wrote it, but you can think what you want about it. 
either way, it was written by a guy that had money, pursued money, and was a king. So he was doing pretty good. Here's what he said about it. The writer of Ecclesiastes. He thought that pleasure and merriment could satisfy him, but he ends up saying this is vanity. That's Ecclesiastes 2, 1 and 2. He thought that food and wine could please him, but he ended up deciding this was vanity. That's Ecclesiastes 2, 3. He thought that wealth could content him. He ends up deciding that's vanity as well. That's Ecclesiastes 5.10. Most of us sit and believe that if we had the wealth that we imagine a king has, that we would be satisfied, that we would be content, that we would have the joy that, that seems to be lacking because of this daily grind that we have to find ourselves in. Here's a guy that had all that, and he said, it's vain. It's vain. It's vain. Over and over again. So, whose insights should we trust on it? Our idea of what would happen if we could get there? Or a guy that's been there? Along with a bunch of other statistics and, and sociological research that will tell you that having a whole bunch of money doesn't make you happier. A lot of times it makes you lonelier and a little more paranoid and less able to enjoy uh, the very things you thought were going to bring you joy. Now, most of us in here can sit and think about helipad rich people and say, yeah, yeah, them. Okay? Let's keep in mind, my American friends, where we sit as far as global percentages, you are among the world's wealthiest people. You don't know what my bank account looks like. I don't care. You have food every day, typically. And if not, you live in a country where if you exert a little bit of effort, you'll find someone that will give you some food. There's a whole bunch of people that don't have that going for them. There's people that right now are making decisions between gas in a vehicle to go to work or food for a child. There's people in desperate places mixing mud and oil together and putting it in their kids' stomachs so that they have something in there, okay? So let's make sure we don't, yeah, ultra-rich, and their terrible attitudes we can fall prey to this stuff as well. The reality is Solomon, Solomon was, man. He was, he was Richie Rich Rich. You know what I'm talking about? You know who Richie Rich is? He was Scrooge McDuck Rich, like jumping in the gold coins, backstroking Rich. That's Solomon. I mean, he was Bruce Wayne times 10 kind of rich. Brother had money. He had, the Bible says he has 660, 60, 666 talents of gold per year being brought to him. Okay, ancient measurement conversions can be tricky, so whatever, but we are talking roughly 24 tons of gold per year. <laughs> a ton's 2,000 pounds. Anyone done the math yet? It's a lot of gold, okay? Now, if you convert it down to troy ounces, you take the per ounce price, you'd end up at, that's the equivalent of roughly $1.1 billion per year, and that's just the gold. So his actual wealth, including animals, ivory, ships, and all the other precious metals and valuables, is really incalculable. You, you, it's, it's impossible to come up with a number for how much dough this guy had, okay? And yet, none of this in the end was satisfying. No level of sexual fulfillment or personal actualization or comfort brought lasting joy. If you go through and read the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's like... Okay, so I, I, I pursued sexual passion. That was vanity. I pursued 
you know, I thought food and wine, I'd find contentment in that. That was vanity. I, I, I worked harder at getting more gold, and, and that was vanity. I planted gardens, and you can just see him out there trying to garden his way to some kind of zen. And what do he say in the end? It's a chasing after the wind. It was all vanity. There was nothing in it. And part of that is because I believe he got to the point where he got so comfortable where he didn't have that same desperation that he had when God visited him in Gibeon and said, I'll give you whatever you want, ask for it. And he said, God, I understand that I've been tasked with this incredible burden and I'm but a child and I need you. The problem is he got wise and he got rich. And what did he decide? I don't need you. And then he spent the rest of his life pursuing something to try to fill the hole that came in him not being in right relationship with the God that made him. Tragic. Common. Not just for Solomon. Friends, please don't let yourself sit and wag your finger at Solomon in this. Place yourself here. See where it applies. Why are we so easily duped into believing that more money or comfort is going to bring us joy? Not only was Solomon rich and wise and had a thousand wives, Israel enjoyed almost complete peace during his reign. Now you might be thinking, I hope you are, you're thinking through this and you're saying, hold on a second, but didn't God give him all that? How could it be then that, that, that all of that, the goodness, the, the peace, no, no trouble, all total tranquility, complete comfort, all provisions made for, more than he could spend in 10,000 lifetimes, had, had literally want or concern for nothing. And it seems that if, as if God at least initiated that process of saying, I'm going I'm to give you this stuff. How could it, that have then been a part of the problem and, and contributed to him turning his heart from God? I don't want to presume upon God. I'm just going to tell you, here's, here's one option. There's, there's a million things God could be doing in, in the overarching plan of his redemptive purposes in all the earth. Here's just, here's just one out of, out, of, out of my small mental faculties that I could come up with. I can easily see God using Solomon in the overarching plan of his redemptive purposes to show all of us throughout all of time that comfort and wealth and the utopia that we think we want will not lead to as much joy as we think. God in his foreknowledge, he did. He visited Solomon. He gave him the wisdom he asked for. He gave him much more. And when he did that, he knew ultimately that he was going to be turned by those wives. I can't figure out all of the reasons why God did what he did, but he did it. Ultimately, though, what, what is the purpose? Well, I think part of it is God knows for some reason there is, this, there is this foolish tendency in us, his children, to try to avoid discomfort at all costs. And so we will do everything we possibly can to insulate our lives from discomfort and thus also almost inadvertently insulate our lives from the need for him. And this is never good for us. You, this is true, whether you'll believe it or not. I, I promise you this is true. We as humans, we can weary of unending comfort as much as we can weary of unending hardship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Most of us don't believe that. Most of us believe we get to the point where we could sit on silk pillows all day and have someone feed us grapes like we did it. Right? Don't judge me for my utopian example, okay? That's probably not what I would do, okay? Probably be hiking in a glacial stream somewhere. 
someone throwing me grapes that I had to catch because I'd be bored. Um, you see my point. We, we can weary from unending comfort as much as we can weary from unending hardship, and it seems almost that we can be more prone to growing weary from unending comfort than we would unending hardship. Uh, we must not, and, and it's, it's even, if you think about it, man, when God created us in, in a perfect utopia to begin with, like we had something to do. We had a mission. It was to tend the garden. God created us with this, this desire to be, to be producing, doing something. He made us as creative beings. And for us to believe this lie that if I just work hard enough to get to the point where I don't have to do anything anymore, and we think that's, how many, do, you, do you know how many people are miserable because they, they made it? where they thought they wanted to be? Friends, don't buy it, please. Take, take, take the advice of people that have gone before us. We must not believe that lie that if we keep collecting resources, we will reach a level of comfort, comfort that will ensure our joy. We can't believe the lie that if we just keep collecting resources... We'll reach a level of comfort that will ensure our joy. Ecclesiastes calls this idea a chasing after the wind. Do you understand the strength of that statement? Do you understand what chasing after the wind is? Nope, didn't get it. Now, how many times are you going to do that? Forever, because you're not going to catch the wind. It's, it's a life of complete and total futility. How tragic is that? My goodness. And so many people have bought that lie. And they chase the wind. If I could just get there, I've set this next goal. If I just get there, and it's not just in monetary things, friends. It's issues of self-image. If I could just get to this weight, or if I could just get to, right? If I can just get there, I'll finally. And then you get there, and it's, oh, oh, I'm not fulfilled. Oh, I'm not content. Oh, I'm not, this isn't as much joy as I thought it was going to be. Well, well, I know what I'll do. I'll set another goal. I'll make more money. I'll have another kid. I'll, there's all kinds of stuff, right? Well, this baby didn't make me happy. How about another one? And I'm looking, this, no whatsoever. Have a million kids. It's awesome. That's not the point. The point is when we turn having kids into the next hope of finding joy. We're, our hearts are idle factories. Okay? So whether you're chasing money, physical image, sexual fulfillment, whatever it is, it's a chasing after the wind, and it's going to lead to a tragically futile life. There's only one way to have a life worth living that's full of purpose, and that's doing what it is God made you to do. And that's going to be probably a somewhat difficult life. It's going to cost you something, but it's going to be beautiful. The question is, will we believe it, friends? In studying this, um, <clears throat> I felt compelled to not just talk about it, but be about it. Um, and so I, I want to do something radical to sow into the work of the kingdom of God, and I'm going to ask all of you to help me with it. Uh, I want you to know that Natalie and I talked about this um, beforehand. I didn't just do it, and um, she agreed that this is a sound investment in sowing gospel influence into our community. Um, before I explain to you what I want to do, I, uh, I just... I don't want to brag on my wife. I just want to say how thankful I am for the fact that um, God allowed me to marry a woman that really loves Jesus and, and is submitted to his word. And I think it's so interesting that after 12 years of marriage, um, with 90% accuracy, she knows what I'm going to say before I say anything by my facial expression. 
And apparently, this has happened enough times where I'm going to come tell her that Jesus wants us to give money away. And so I came to like tell her what I'm about to tell you. And she's like, I can tell she knows something's about to happen. So I sit down, I tell her, and she's like, oh, that's, that's nothing compared to what I thought you were going to say. So <laughs> she's thrilled about this. I just want you to know. Um, so here's what, here's what I want to do. Um, and, and, I, and I honestly played, prayed about this, and I feel compelled by God to do it. Um, and, and I believe this, this has great potential for sowing gospel influence into our community. Um, I, brought, uh, I brought enough $5 bills tonight for every single person here to take one. And what I want you to do with that, what I'm asking you to do with that, is to pray over it in a serious way. This is not a game. I'm asking you to pray over it, and I'm asking you to ask God to give you wisdom about who to give that to next week. Find somebody, by God's grace, that he would lead you to by his discernment and, uh, and give them that money. Now, here's the truth. I'm putting this money in your hands. You can ultimately do what you want with it. I'm giving it to you and my hands are off of it. You have a choice to make. What I'm asking you to do with it is I'm asking you to take it and I'm asking you to sow it into somebody's life. And I'm asking you to be led by God's spirit as you do it. Now, couple things I want to say. It would be cool. Some of you are going to do that, and uh, there won't be fireworks. There won't be any necessarily visible immediate fruit, um, and we'll trust that God will take that seed and multiply it. Some of you are going to do this, and, and I presume um, God's going to lead you to somebody that it's going to really matter to them that you showed them God's generosity, and you're going to have an opportunity then to talk about his love and his generosity and the reason why you'd be crazy enough to give away five bucks. Some of you are going to struggle with approaching somebody and doing anything other than making a paper airplane out of it and throwing it at them and running. I'm going to ask you to ask God to help you not to do that. I'm asking you to intentionally engage with somebody when you give them this money and at least tell them the reason I'm giving you this is because God's been generous to me and I want to be generous with you in hopes that their heart is softened and you can take that conversation further. I'm trusting God that by doing this with radical generosity, uh, that's sowing these seeds in our community. Here's the thing. I could go out next week, but I could never, I could never potentially, even, even if I had more time than I have, um, go into all the places you guys are going to go. And so I believe this, this is the best possible chance I have to get, get a bunch of seed out uh, for the possibility of, of blessing people, softening their heart, and uh, having opportunity to share the love of God and the generosity of God with others. And so I'm asking you if you'll do it, and uh, I appreciate if you would. If cool stories happen, it'd be great to hear it. Um, but I'm asking you also to please keep in mind that um, Natalie and I are only servants of the king. And so if there, was, if there was some rich guy that wanted to give you something, and he sent his employee to hand you the thing he wanted to give you, you're not going to like gush over the employee right? You're thankful to the guy, that, the rich guy that gave you the thing, right? Okay? So just, Natalie and I are just the employee, okay? Anything we have belongs to God anyways. So uh, I just say that because sometimes it, it's important to me that glory goes where it belongs, and it belongs with King Jesus, okay? You guys cool with helping me with that? Amen. Solomon said this in Proverbs, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. 
for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. I believe that's true. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, better than gold and silver. Um, just real quickly, I want to I touch one thing that is another debate surrounding Solomon's life. Many times people will ask the question, was Solomon saved? Saved or born again are New Testament terms, okay? Um, but God did count many Old Testament characters as righteous by faith, right? That's what he said about Abraham, others. Um, really what people want to know when they ask that question is, was he redeemed in the end and is he in heaven? Oftentimes folks with nothing better to do than ponder and debate questions with no sure answers will bat things like this around. Some point to his being not being included in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. It's like there's a bunch of prominent people throughout the Old Testament saying that by faith they did this and this and this and this, right? And you would think if Solomon like ended up in God's good graces that he would have made that. I don't think Hebrews 11 was ever supposed to be an extensive list of Old Testament saints that God saved by faith. So um, I don't know about that. Uh, they, sometimes people will talk about his egregious participation in idolatry and kind of the bummer tone overall of Ecclesiastes as evidence that he ended up not being redeemed. Some point to God's incredible blessing upon Solomon, the fact that he did build the temple in obedience, um, the fact that he ended up with a bunch of wisdom and riches, and that at the end of Ecclesiastes, he summarizes what he's learned from all of this. And, and if you look at that, um, some people cite all of that as evidence that he was redeemed. So there's people that, that would argue both ways about it. The problem with taking a firm stance either way on this lies in 1 Samuel 16.7. This is where Samuel is going. He's supposed to anoint King David. Uh, and, and God tells Samuel not to look upon outward appearance because God looks at the heart. We need to pay more attention, I think, to the way that we talk about all those whose lives upon this earth have ended. It is not uncommon for people to make confident assertions about the eternity of other people. The question is, should we be so sure? Can we look upon the heart of others? We are given by Jesus permission to make judgments based on on the fruit in someone's life, and we should do that in order to speak the truth and love to them, whether it is encouragement or it's rebuke. But at the end of it all, especially when we are able to be deceived by our own hearts, according to the prophet Jeremiah, should we be so quick to pronounce somebody's eternal destiny with confidence? I don't think so. That's the premise I'm laying down, in case you aren't tracking with me. I think we would do better in many cases to declare our confidence in God's mercy and perfect justice. When faced with the question of someone else's eternity, the fact that we often think first about that person's performance in this life from our perspective, instead of the unblemished holiness of our perfect judge, the fact that we go to that, when someone asks, well, do you think that person went to heaven? Most of the time, we're not thinking about the fact that God is perfect in his holiness and in his judgment. Most of the time, the first thing we start running through our Rolodex mentally is, okay, what kind of person were they? Do we think they were a good person? Do, what do we think the evidence is of what was going on in their heart? That should reveal for us the constant struggle to keep our hearts and minds oriented towards the gospel. That should tell us right there. The way we think about dead people should tell us we struggle to believe the gospel every day, no matter how many times we've heard it. Because we want to ascribe a decision and a judgment about most people's eternity based on what we think we know. Let us remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Let us also remember who Jesus declared righteous out of them. And let us also admit that it is sometimes hard for us to distinguish the two. May we be a people who pray humble prayers with pure motives, that we may be pleasing to God our Father. May we be a people who truly understand love by God's definition, that we may also be wise. And may we be a people who pay attention to who and what is influencing us, that we may not be led away from Jesus, but instead lead others to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Solomon. We know, Lord God, that you did for Solomon what you're doing for all of us. You are working in our lives and through our lives to accomplish your redemptive purpose in the earth. I thank you, God, that you are at work. I thank you, God, that you have a plan. I thank you, Lord, that you are mighty and well able to bring absolutely everything to pass that you see fit. That is where our trust is, God. We rest at night knowing you are sovereign Lord, King over all, that no one questions your authority. You are ruler alone. We thank you, Lord, that uh, even though the lies that we tend to believe are pervasive and they are many, that you've given us your word. And if we, will, if we will come to your word humbly, that you've given us everything we need to push back against those lies, that your truth will trump deceit, that light will beat out darkness. Help us, God, to think correctly. Help us to have our minds renewed daily by your word. Help us to push back against the barrage of mistruths and deceptions that come at us all the time, trying to pull us to the right and to the left. God, please help us. Help us to care about influencing those towards you and your gospel that don't know you. God, may we never settle for haphazard relationships or unintentional meetings. God, help us to always be of a mind that what's going on in, in the hearts and in the eternities of people that don't know you is crucial. We need your help in this, God. There's so many distractions. There's so many ways we can have our eyes diverted. But Lord, we're telling you right now, in the midst of your presence, that what we want is to serve you faithfully in this way. We ask for wisdom, Lord God, to do what it is you've called us to do, the same way Solomon did. May that prayer be pleasing to you. May our motives be pure. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.